It's time for the February 9, 2024 edition of Weekly Signals Weekly Review, a personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history, broadcasting on Read in the Bathtub Day from the University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And as always... The chump who dropped his book in the toilet, <laughs> Mahler, the deep fake news dog. Yeah. Ruff, ruff. Today we'll be talking about profane parrots, veterinary cannabis, Martian gridlock, Dorothy's ruby slippers, and so much more. But first, from mm-hmm. Vox. Vox. In the summer of 2020, the Dome Fire. Oh, the Dome Fire. Leapt across the Mojave National Preserve in southeastern California, killing more than 1.3 million Joshua trees. Yeah. Three years later, in 2023, the 93,078-acre York Fire more than doubled the acreage of the Dome Fire, scorching large forests of Joshua trees. While some Joshua tree sprouts have formed naturally in the ashes of these fires, their modern distributors, seed-caching rodents, only travel a short distance from their burrows, making it difficult for the yuccas to migrate across the massive burn scars and reestablish themselves. So Joshua trees are disappearing faster than their sprouts can take root. In the absence of giant ground sloths, that some scientists think served as seed dispersers for Joshua trees over 12,000 years ago, human volunteers organized by the National Park Service have taken over by planting sprouts of the yuccas across the landscape, and some received the help of camels. That's kind of cool. Camels? Camels. The camels' presence in the Mojave Desert or the Mojave National Preserve is significant. It harks back to their long-distant relatives, Camelops hesternus, or yesterday's camel. Oh, okay. It sounds like a Paul McCartney song, you know? <laughs> these yesterday's camels once lived in what is now the Mojave. But these modern-day camels aren't eating Joshua tree fruits and pooping out the seeds, as yesterday's camels did. They're carrying Joshua tree sprouts in water to save a tree that is especially vulnerable in a changing climate. Now, they're not doing it on their own. They have... So they, helping them. minders that take them around, walk yeah. them around? Yeah. Who? Do they have people? People. Minders. minders. Did yeah. you say minders? Gotcha. <laughs> well, you know, I had would not have put camels in a California desert, but, uh, you know, they are used to that kind of weather and those kind of conditions. So yeah, they, they used to be out there, too. Yeah. Uh, we transported some because Hollywood and everything else. Yeah. But. But they're doing a good job there. In the years ahead, plans are moving forward to organize a long train of camels. I believe that's a cake song. <laughs> as many as 12 strong. So 12 camels in a row. That's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. I'd like to see that floating around the desert. Yeah, that'd be cool. Imagine but, all those guys out of Joshua Tree that just dropped a little, you know, something. Something. A little mushroom or something. And they all of a sudden they look up and they see 12 camels coming uh, at them. They're expecting uh, Rudolph Valentino. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Brendan Cummings, the conservation director of the Center for Biological Diversity, said, even if they are only a small part, camels can bring a certain je ne sais quoi to the event that adds a mix of absurdity plus practicality, which is pretty much summing up what a camel is. (laughs) Absurdity plus practicality. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very cool idea. I'm glad somebody came up with it. And yeah. yeah, it's just one of those 
thinking a little bit outside of the the norm to get stuff done. That's yeah, great. Yeah, we're not importing camels. They're yeah. our own camels. Yeah. You know, yeah. They're American any... camels. <laughs> From NPR, foul-mouthed parrots at Lincolnshire Wildlife Park in England are drawing big crowds. I bet. The family-friendly animal park is trying a plan it hopes will tame some of the parrots' foul language. <laughs> well, come on. Well, you know, you're bringing kids there. Some people don't expect it. Adults only zoo exhibit. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, okay. All right. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Well, it's kind of like us at KUCI yeah. uh, in that we can't swear. I, I'm yeah. sure that the well, uh, Lincolnshire Wildlife Park is much like the University of California. Right. Well, after 10 o'clock, we can play music. That's, play music that swears, yeah, but we ourselves kinda, no, can't, we can't No. Yeah. Anyway, this plan that the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park has, uh, they're planning on integrating the swearing parrots into the non-swearing parrots. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah. Well, which way do you think they're going to go? And yeah. they they will hopefully learn all the nicer sounds and words. I have a feeling says, that's not the way it's going to play yeah, out. Yeah, said Steve Nichols, the park CEO. <laughs> Well, they don't know. I don't think they no, know. No, they don't cognitively know that these are swear words and they shouldn't be saying them in in. But I think they know company, we but... delight in saying yeah. them. So they I... might that might be an extra incentive for them. Yeah. I don't know. But for now, the cussing parrots are drawing big crowds. Yeah. The park has posted a sign near the parrots' habitat warning that visitors should expect to hear every common swear word. <laughs> and some uncommon ones, too. <laughs> and should shepherd children away from the area. One might ask, since they're integrating the swearing flock into the non-swearing flock, are the parrots teaching all these foul words to each other? Yes. So they'll have a yeah. complete <clears throat> flock of cussers. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Or is the profanity just coming from humans and they're not going to necessarily learn from each other? It's certainly down to the humans, Nichols, the CEO said. And what makes it funny is that this particular species, the gray parrot, actually replicates the person's voice exactly. Wow. Whoever taught them, wow. it's trying to do that. Illustrating his point, he told a story of a lady who spoke to him about donating her parrot. Her husband had taught the bird all the profane words it knew, the woman said. There was just one snag. The parrot was swearing in the woman's voice. <laughs> yeah. Would you have a profane Oh, I'd love that. Yeah, that I be? would put it out in front of my house. <laughs> People know? walking by, walking yeah, their dogs. What and... the f*** are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I'd love it. Muller? <laughs> yeah. okay. If you can't stop swearing, may I recommend a donation to KUCI because we can't swear at all. Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial free, free form, free speech radio, KUCI 88.9 FM. From Wired. When turbine blades for the United States' first offshore wind project left port in September of 2023, headed for the Vineyard Wind One project off Massachusetts. They were traveling on a barge instead of a wind turbine installation vessel, a transportation and construction rig in one. Mm -hmm. That's what this wind turbine installation gotcha. vessel is. Right. Frequently equipped with a big crane, deployable legs, and a dynamic positioning system, wind turbine installation vessels can support the installation of several humongous turbines per trip. Mm. 
There are dozens of them plying the world's waters. So why were the Massachusetts blades delivered on a barge? This expensive, inefficient workaround was necessary because of a century-old law known as the Jones Act, which requires anyone transporting goods from one point in the United States to another to use an American ship. And by a modern interpretation of the old law, an offshore turbine counts as a point in the United States. So they have to use a U.S. vessel. Trouble is, the United States doesn't have any working wind turbine installation vessels. The Biden administration's goal is to deploy offshore wind turbines capable of generating 30 gigawatts of power by 2030. That's more than 2,000 turbines. To meet this target, the U.S. Department of Energy says there's a need for four to six wind turbine installation vessels. But as 2030 draws even closer, there's only one vessel around and it's still in production. Wow. So we got to move on this. It, does, it just seems like there might be a legislative carve out for something like this, that you could figure out a way to amend the Jones Act. I would hope so. I would. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not like this isn't. This Although, isn't don't the, count on it. We, yeah. we can't abolish the penny. Yeah. <laughs> it's a worthless piece of change. Yeah, it is. It is. And nobody said no more pennies. So the Jones Act, you know, don't count on it. Yeah. And there's probably a lot of lobbying going on from certain folks who make a lot of money off this whole procedure of the Jones Act and using American ships. Yeah. By the way, my first introduction with the Jones Act, first time I'd ever heard of it, was back when the uh, hurricane, I can't remember which one, just basically blew apart Puerto Rico. And they were in dire need. It was during the Trump administration. I do remember him tossing paper towels at people. That was called the paper towel hurricane. I yeah, think. really. They were in desperate need of supplies of all kinds. And they had trouble getting them because of the Jones Act. They, yeah. Because they couldn't wrangle enough of the proper ships to get the, the stuff that they needed. And I just I couldn't believe my ears for the first yeah. time I heard it. Yeah, From the New York Times, a bit coin outfit in Arkansas, 45 minutes north of Little Rock, is one of three sites in the state owned by a network of companies embroiled in tense disputes with residents who say the noise generated by computers performing trillions of calculations per second ruins lives, lowers property values, and drives away wildlife. Though some elected officials have voiced support for the beleaguered residents, a new Arkansas state law has given the companies a significant leg up. The Arkansas Data Centers Act, popularly called the Right to Mine Law. That's kind of funny. Yeah. Right to yours, right to mine. But it's actually the Bitcoin mining. This law offers Bitcoin miners legal protections from communities that may not want them operating nearby. Yeah passed just eight days after it was introduced that's pretty swift yeah that means somebody had a lot of money behind that happening the law was written in part by the satoshi action fund oh god a nonprofit advocacy group based in mississippi whose co-founder mandy gonna worked in the trump administration rolling back obama era climate policies Bills written in collaboration with the Satoshi Action Fund were introduced last month in several states, including Indiana, Missouri, Nebraska, and Virginia. Gunasiksara, the uh, Trump administration official, gained notoriety in 2015 while working for Senator Jim Inhofe. 
Republican of Oklahoma. Oh, no, don't tell me. She brought him the snowball. Oh, the my God. I, why did I know you were going to say that? Oh, That's one my. of our favorite stories. Oh, he's got to be the one of them. climate change story where- yeah, James Inhofe. Because James He's on the floor Inhofe. of the Senate. Said it with a snowball. <laughs> There's no climate change going on. Look. I have a snowball. Look at this snowball. How could there possibly be climate change? What a maroon. What a, well, not just that he's a maroon. The fact that people celebrated that yeah, as yeah, a moment. Yeah, yeah. It's not even that. He's a useful idiot. He's access to the best scientific information available. He has to know. But that, that scientific information is not God's plan, It's Mike. not God's plan. No. It's, yeah. it's formulated by demons. Yeah, and speaking of demons, truly, if... You know how wound up I get about crypto and Bitcoin and all that stuff. And this uh-huh. is just one more example of this scourge that is being visited upon us by these by these entrepreneurial a-holes. Okay. From Yale Environment 360, generative artificial intelligence uses massive amounts of energy for computation and data storage and billions of gallons of water to cool the equipment at data centers. Now, legislators and regulators in the U.S. and the E.U. are starting to demand accountability. The development of the next generation of A.I. tools cannot come at the expense of the health of the planet, Mm -hmm. Massachusetts Senator Edward Markey, Democrat, said last week in Washington after he and other senators and representatives introduced a bill that would require the federal government to assess A.I.'s current environmental footprint and develop a standardized system for reporting future impacts. The European Union's AI Act, approved by member states last week, will require high-risk AI systems, which include the powerful foundation models that power ChatGPT and similar AIs, to report their energy consumption, resource use, and other impacts throughout their system's life cycle. The EU law takes effect next year. I hope we get something going real soon on this. Yeah. It's stupid. I understand. AI is great for some things. Yeah. But if you're fabricating some photo on a whim because you want to see what Donald Trump looks like in a diaper, you don't need to burn up a lot of power and no. water just to make that happen. No, I agree. From BBC News, hundreds of people are missing as wildfires continue to raise homes in Chile's Valparaiso region. More than 120 people have been killed in the fires, which have burned down thousands of homes. The fires broke out last week amid an unusual heat wave that have drawn tourists to the seaside towns of Viña del Mar and Valparaiso, which are normally cooled by sea breezes. But both cities have been wrapped in acrid smoke from the forest fires burning in the nearby hills. The fires were fanned by strong winds, and residents described how within minutes their hillside communities were engulfed in flames. Many people were not able to flee in time and were overtaken by a wall of flames. Officials said that 123 had died, but so far only 33 have been identified. Nearly 15,000 homes have been damaged, according to authorities. From Science Daily, speaking of Jim Imhoff, Michael Mann, a prominent climate scientist, won his long-standing legal battle against two right-wing bloggers who claimed that he manipulated data in his research and compared him to convicted child molester Jerry Sandusky, a major victory for the outspoken researcher Michael Mann. What the? A civil trial in Washington found that the two writers, Rand Simberg and Mark 
Chastain defamed and injured the researcher in a pair of blog posts published in 2012 and awarded man more than $1 million. I hope this verdict sends a message that falsely attacking climate scientists is not protected speech, Mann said in a statement. Mann's victory comes amid heightened attacks on scientists working not just on climate change, but on vaccines and other issues. The verdict is a dozen years in the making for the climatologist who for years has been a frequent target of right-wing critics over his famous hockey stick graph. Early in his career, Mann used data from tree rings, ice cores, and coral reefs to show how global temperatures were relatively stable until the Industrial Revolution. But after humans started burning fossil fuels in large quantities, Mann and his colleagues found temperatures spiked over the past centuries. And well, good, we good, good for the court system. <laughs> no, what are we looking at? 12 years after the fact, but nonetheless, justice seems to be moving in the right direction here. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. right, Molly. Mm -hmm. Here's a sentence from Harper's. <laughs> in Pennsylvania, a 32-year-old self-published author of dystopian science fiction who recently sued the United States over his student loan debt used a machete to behead his father, who had been a federal employee for 20 years, and then posted a video of himself holding the head in a clear plastic grocery bag as he called for the execution of all government workers. From Business Insider, a Russian plane accidentally dropped two bombs on Russian territory. One hit a farm in Postnikov, and another struck an urban street in Stoletskaya, prompting the evacuation of 150 residents. No injuries were reported, and the bombs were defused. This is the fourth such incident in less than a month which were likely caused by crew fatigue within the Russian front line, as well as inadequate training. Russia experienced similar blunders last year, including shooting down one of its prized Su-35 fighter jets in October, bombing the Russian-occupied settlement of Novokakova in September, and striking the Russian border city of Belgorod in April. They seem to be going after themselves. I don't know. (laughs) It could be fatigue. However... If it's something else, guys, uh, you may reconsider the whole idea of winning the war in Ukraine. I, I have a feeling what you said is, is true. Their frontline troops were pretty well devastated in the first couple, six months or so of this, yeah. of this war with Ukraine. And they've been pulling people out of prisons, out of Siberia, all kinds of places to get people in uniform to fight against the Ukrainians. And this may be a byproduct of all that. Yeah, let's just say those people may not have been committed to dropping the bombs in the right place. Yes, <laughs> That's right. From the Associated Press, Toyota and General Motors are telling the owners of about 61,000 older Corolla, Matrix, RAV4, and Pontiac Vibe models to stop driving them. Pontiac Vibe? Yeah, Pontiac wow. Vibe. That was a short-lived. Yeah. But we're, we're talking like back in the early 2000s yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those cars. Yeah. 
driving them because their Takata airbag inflators are at risk of exploding and hurling shrapnel. Shrapnel. Yeah. <laughs> the, the urgent warning covers certain Corolla oh. compact cars and Matrix hatchbacks from the 2003 and 2004 model years, as well as the RAV4 small SUV from 2004 and 2005. Wow. Also covered are about 11,000 Pontiac Vibes from 2003 and 2004. Sounds like the early 2000s weren't a great uh, no. time for buying a small car. <laughs> uh, most of the vehicles are in the U.S., if the airbag deploys, a part inside is more likely to explode and shoot sharp metal fragments, which could cause serious injury or death to the driver or passengers, oh Toyota said in a statement. Takata used volatile ammonium nitrate to create a small explosion to inflate airbags in a crash. But the chemical propellant can deteriorate over time when exposed to high temperatures and humidity. It can then explode with too much force, blowing apart a metal canister and spewing shrapnel. At least 26 people have been killed in the U.S. by Takata inflators since May 2009, and at least 30 have died worldwide, including people in Malaysia and Australia. In addition, about 400 people have been injured. The potential for a dangerous malfunction led to the largest series of auto recalls in U.S. history. This has been going on for a while. They just found this in these particular cars. About 100 million inflators were recalled worldwide. The exploding airbag sent Takata of Japan into bankruptcy. Of all the ways you can go, I mean, that, you know, you're driving around, you hit a parked car, yeah. and you die. You know, airbags on balance have been a very cool kind of safety device in all of our cars. It's now mandated. Glad they came up with it. It's probably saved tens of thousands of lives in the process. But it's always been one of those technologies. If, when you think about it, something right in front of me is going to explode. Uh-huh. And it's going to send out this little bag, this little airbag that's going to protect me from serious injury. Uh-huh. But the idea of something exploding inside your car has always been a tricky yeah. technology. Well, yeah. It's changed the way we drive. You used to keep your hands at 10 and 2. Yeah. Now you keep them at 9 and 3. The reason is because the bag would explode and send your fist into your face. And one of the most common injuries in an accident where an airbag deployed was somebody with black eyes and broken noses because they literally pounded their face. <laughs> From the Washington Post. Congressional gridlock has thrown sand in the gears of NASA's search for ancient life on Mars, citing funding uncertainties and the failure of Congress to pass the 2024 budget. The NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is operated under contract by Caltech, announced that it's laying off 8% of its workforce, about 530 people plus another 40 contractors. And God knows how many people are affected by that. The stunning move comes amid technical and budgetary challenges for the JPL's most ambitious mission, Mars Sample Return, a partnership with the European Space Agency that is designed to bring Martian soil back to Earth for scrutiny in laboratories. Yeah. I love what they do at JPL. I used my high school was I could see JPL from the classroom. Uh-huh. What a great organization, what great work they do and 
Yeah, yeah hate to see. If you're them really impact. interested, every year they have a open house, or at least they used to. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know post-pandemic what happened with that, but it was it's a great place to visit. A lot of wonderful displays and yeah. just meet great people. There and too. can I just throw in a, a little tiny commercial here for a documentary I saw last year? It was called Always Quiet in the Twilight. It was about the two voyagers that we sent into space to explore uh-huh. Jupiter and Saturn and a few other things. It's a great little documentary. It's about JPL. It's about the people who work there. It's about the dedication that they have to this this little mission that continues to fascinate humanity in, in so many ways. You know, now we're talking 30, 40 years later after Voyager. So I just have nothing but respect for those people. From Los Angeles Times, a bill proposed by California Senator Scott Weiner a Democrat from San Francisco, would allow the consumption of alcohol on public streets and zones designated for open-air tippling. I don't know if it's tippling, but the L.A. Times wrote it as tippling. Tippling is habitual. Okay. Proposed legislation, Senate Bill 969, would give municipalities and counties the power, starting in 2025, to designate local entertainment zones where people could consume alcoholic beverages on public streets, sidewalks, or public right-of-ways and jump out into traffic and, <laughs> and, dance, and dance because that's what you do, And okay, according to the bill. <laughs> So I, you know, I don't know what to say yeah, about I, this, really. I, I can see there being problems. I just, yeah, the problem would be whatever this designated area is, somebody does something crazy, gets hurt, walks into oncoming traffic, whatever, who's liable? There will always be that issue of liability, but I guess they're trying to figure out a way to let people drink and not be liable, yep. I guess. Yeah. Right. Well, let people drink and have us be liable. And have us be liable, yeah. yeah. From Los Angeles Times, California drivers will need to double check where they park their car this year as a new law on the books has created a no parking buffer around marked and unmarked pedestrian crosswalks. Drivers are typically not allowed to park their vehicles in the middle of an intersection. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) On a crosswalk. Yeah. Yeah. In front of marked curbs, red curbs, in a way that blocks access to fire hydrants, of course, Mm -hmm. or too close to a fire station entrance, among other prohibited parking spots. Now drivers will need to consider the areas around crosswalks as no park zones because of the law that went into effect at the start of the year. Over the next 12 months, drivers will receive a warning if they violate the rule, but citations will begin on January 1, 2025. Mm-hmm. Drivers will need to get into the habit of leaving a 20-foot gap between their vehicle and any marked or unmarked crosswalks. Assembly Bill 413 does not specify what constitutes an unmarked crosswalk and whether that applies to a sidewalk, curb, or a ramp. Uh, but according to the Highway Patrol, California Highway patrol an unmarked crosswalk is a prolongation of any pedestrian pathway whether it be an approved sidewalk or a dirt trail an unmarked crosswalk can only be at an intersection okay okay Okay. i guess that means we cannot park within 20 feet of any intersection yeah okay yeah that would be a smart way to put it and then we don't need to worry about yeah the designated unmarked park. Yeah, that uh, sounds very crosswalk. bureaucratic. I, I get it, and I and on balance, it sounds like a really good idea. As as horrible as parking can be in certain metropolitan areas, it will put a little extra strain on that kind of activity. Yeah. I'm all, my beef has always been with parking lots. There's no consideration for for pedestrians in parking lots. Very little. Mm-hmm. And you know what else? Bushes. 
Mm-hmm. You got bushes in parking lots. <laughs> what are bushes doing in parking lots? Yeah. I'm really driving around the parking lot saying, oh, oh there's a beautiful bush. <laughs> I have to walk over it, though, to get where I'm going. And it can't be healthy for any sort of plant life to be in the middle yeah. of an area where where there's constant bombardment by pollutants. And you're right, it sure does impede people from seeing pedestrians walking around their parking lot, too. And then trees. And trees. Trees. <laughs> They're planting these little baby trees in there. They don't let them grow very big. No. I guess it's for shade. But, you know, it's a parking lot. Yeah. It's just a parking lot. Own so, it. But yeah, just, just, yeah, just, don't just, pretty just, it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we need efficiency. We don't need shrubbery. Yeah, very well put. And, and we, need a, we need a pathway <laughs> to get to where we're going. Because yeah. you can park your car, but sometimes navigating mm-hmm. the lot itself can be a challenge. With From the New York Times, medical cannabis for humans is legal and commonly used in a number of countries and states. But its adoption in veterinary practices has lagged behind human medicine. Dozens of science. What is it, Mahler? Yeah, uh, Mahler's yeah. testifying yeah, to that. Yeah, n- well, not for Mahler. I mean, I, I've seen him lit. You've seen Mahler lit? Oh, a couple times. Yeah, I mean. Well, that's. You, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think this morning. Yeah. But it's, it's not just. Being lit is taking care of your I know, dog. I understand, yeah. Taking Dozens care. of scientific studies point to cannabis's potential for treating seizures, pain, anxiety, and fear, mostly in dogs. That doesn't mean that dogs are the only ones that have pain, anxiety, and fear, only that that's you know, where the studies have been with yeah. dogs, because dogs are so much fun. Yeah, yeah they are. Yeah. 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 Laws in places like... That's right, Mother. Laws in places like California have begun to make way for veterinary cannabis, and a small but growing number of international veterinarians have united to bring cannabis into mainstream veterinary medicine. Yeah. Dr. Diane Butrago, a veterinarian at the Cal Zoo in Colombia, down south of us, in the <laughs> oh, country okay. Okay. of Colombia. Okay. When I saw Cali Zoo, is C-A-L-I, I oh. thought this was some... You know, California product. But anyway, Dr. Diana Batrago estimates that she and her colleagues have given cannabis to more than 50 species since 2020, from mountain tapers and lines to snakes and capybaras. They have found that CBD works well for pain, inflammation, osteoarthritis, and allergies. THC, on the other hand, usually gives better results for patients at the zoo struggling with stress and anxiety. Huh. It helped bring relief to a parrot who was plucking out her feathers, oh, yeah. for example, yeah. and a jaguar who was obsessing, pacing his enclosure and biting his tail. Hmm. Maybe it's that they're captive. Yeah, yeah. could maybe, be. Maybe might be. That's, that's maybe they don't maybe. like being pent up and <laughs> stared at all day. Yeah, maybe. Uh, keep in mind, it can be dangerous for pet owners to try to medicate their pets when, with cannabis products without professional guidance. Yeah. In dogs, for example, too much THC can cause side effects like incontinence, lethargy, paranoia, vomiting in a coma-like state. I I think that holds true for people, too. (laughs) (laughs) But what do I know? With marijuana being so ubiquitous now, most days in the ER we see an intoxicated animal, Mm -hmm. said Dr. Shelley Pancoast, an emergency veterinarian. Okay, well, I give my dog some uh, CBD sometimes. Yeah. 
she can't handle thunderstorms. And that seems to calm her a bit. I hadn't thought about the uh, 4th of July Yeah, that problem. too. Yeah, that, that a little bit of maybe CBD so, yeah, can, can take the edge off. And really, there's enough instructions, professional guidance, if people just learn how to read. Because <laughs> all the packages pretty much say yeah. start very lightly, yeah. give for every five pounds or ten pounds about how much you should give your yeah. dog. Yeah. yeah. No, just sparking one up and blowing smoke into his into their nose. Yeah, that doesn't really. It doesn't. It's work not that effective way. delivery system. You know, although Mahler, I've seen him just yeah, well, uh, with well. a with a joint hanging out of his <laughs> lips. I'm saying it's, it's amazing, Mahler. Mahler. Yeah, Mahler. I, I admire your yeah. your yeah. coordination. Hey, Mahler, next time, <laughs> easy on the Grateful Dead music. Okay, okay. I, I just get Please. a little bit too yeah. much. From the Washington Post, new research suggests using cannabis could make you a nicer person. This is the Cannabis Hour, no, by the way. Be, yeah. uh, the findings published in the Journal of Neuroscience Research suggest there could be a connection between cannabis use and empathy. A study of 85 regular cannabis users and 51 non-users asked participants to complete a test that measures empathy. Researchers also used brain imaging to study some of the subjects, analyzing a region of the brain that plays a central role in uh, mediating the empathetic hmm. response. Hmm. Cannabis users scored higher on a part of the test that assessed emotional comprehension or the ability to understand another's emotional state. In the imaging section of the study, cannabis users had greater connectivity to areas associated with emotional and empathy-related regions. The research shows an association between cannabis use and empathy, but doesn't prove cause and effects, said Kerry Cutler, a psychology professor at Washington State University. We have no idea if it's that the people who are more empathetic to begin with are more likely to use cannabis, Cutler said. Mm -hmm. So in other words... It may be a self-selecting group of people. Yeah, you're already yeah. empathetic, yeah. so you want to smoke a joint. Yeah. I don't know. Well, That's not one of the reasons I well, no, begin smoking. But, and this, this may be... This is a stretch. Uh, let me say at the, at the outset, this is a stretch. But back in a period of time in my life, where people would sit somewhere, whether it was the back of a van or in a park, and pass it around, uh -huh. pass a joint around, and it was a very social event. Like uh, what President Obama used to do. Okay, yeah, like <laughs> Barry used to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying there at is Cal some... Poly here. Yeah, at Cal yeah. Poly, yeah. There is something about the act of sharing a marijuana cigarette with uh -huh. someone and, and it becomes a very much a social socializing event that's that's my until someone punches you in the <laughs> face until somebody says turn off the grateful dead and then their riot ensues right after that but no i'm just saying i don't know if that plays into the research or the the well, culture have, you or have the to psychology share the you're joint. sharing something so you're saying that this dr cutler might have a, a point here i'm just i'm know. just thinking about it on my own not that I ever did this, but people I know used to do this, and they would comment on the socializing impact of being yeah. in a circle or whatever, talking about things and sharing a joint. No, yeah. I just like to think that empathy is just another word for a broken short-term memory. <laughs> yeah. 
And finally, from Columbia Broadcasting System News, Terry John Martin, the aging reformed mobster who admitted stealing a pair of ruby slippers that Judy Garland wore in The Wizard of Oz, said that he committed the crime because he gave in to the temptation of one last score <laughs> after an old mob associate led him to believe the famous shoes must be adorned with real rubies to justify their $1 million insured value. Martin pleaded guilty in October to using a hammer to smash the glass of the museum door and display case to take the slippers. He had hoped to harvest real rubies from the shoes and sell them, but a fence informed him the rubies were glass and Martin got rid of the slippers less than two days after he took them. The old mobster had no idea about the cultural significance of the ruby slippers. He had never even seen the movie. <laughs> You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review Podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.